And actually, you can just stay, you can stay standing. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll read our, our verses. We've got a rowdy crew this morning. All right, come on over to our seats. You can, uh, you can stay standing. Um, and we're going to, we'll right away read Mark 14, 12 through 25, which should be up on the, on the screen. Um, so if you have your Bible, and you can leave it open this morning, we'll come back to it a few times. But, but let me read this, and then we'll, uh, we'll sit and we'll pray for the sermon. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. At the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that's already set up. That is where you should prepare our meal. So the disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said. And they prepared the Passover meal there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the twelve as they were sitting, at the, as they were at the table eating. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating here with me will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, it is one of you twelve who is eating from this bowl with me. For the Son of Man must die, as the scriptures declared long ago, but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It'd be better, far better, for that man if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You can have a seat. Lord, this morning our hearts are heavy uh, with everything going on in our neighboring state. Um, Lord, as Pastor Sam has mentioned, there is a, a fellow pastor in our denomination, Pastor Blaine, whose church, uh, part of our family of churches, uh, is up in that area. Uh, and Pastor Blaine is not only a pastor, but also a first responder and was working, has been working directly with the crisis this whole uh, week and weekend. Um, Lord, we long for the day when uh, death is no more and violence is no more. Um, Lord, we grieve over the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of evil, the brokenness of Satan in this world. It is real, and we see it every day. God, we ask um, that you would comfort the families affected. Um, Lord, bring peace. Bring your healing touch. Use the, your churches in those areas to be a mighty blessing in the coming 
weeks and months and years. Because this is not a slow, fast process. This is a slow process. Um, be with Pastor Blaine. Help our church know how we can be a blessing to him and his church and others up there moving forward. Lead us in that. Lord, this is such a reminder, as I was thinking about that this weekend, that this is why we're here. Uh, in this world, it's, it's not a game. We need you so badly. We need truth so badly. We need rescue so badly. All of us. We are a needy, desperate, fragile people who need a powerful, loving, all-authoritative Father. God, we thank you that that's who you are. We are not that. Thank you for your word. We pray this morning that we would submit ourselves to it, even if it says things and teaches things that we don't like. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so in our text this morning, uh, we've, as we've been journeying through Mark, uh, we're going to be looking at the Passover meal. And, and the theme of it is that Jesus the King does a lot of things throughout Mark, but what he does this morning in our text is he, he prepares a table for his people. He prepares a table for his people, a place of belonging, a place of identity, a place of safety. And I actually think for all of us, we can connect with that imagery, this idea of sitting at a table, uh, being hemmed in, being safe, belonging, having a sense of identity, a sense of purpose, a sense of people, a sense of connection. It's actually interesting that where Scripture, where the story of God is going, for those who believe, is to a great wedding feast in Revelation 19. There's this image of a, a feast that we share together uh, at the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, and, and that's this image of the longing. As I think about uh, the upcoming Thanksgiving holiday, and some of you are like, we haven't even got through Halloween yet. Um, but still, Thanksgiving's actually around the corner, before you, believe it or not. You know, what is it about Thanksgiving that, that gives us excitement? that draws us to it. And at least for me, it's that sense and image and experience of being around a table. Being around a table with people you love, with people you care about. There's almost a warmth in the air when you imagine Thanksgiving, unlike even other meals. There's this sense of fullness to it. All of us long to sit at tables like this. Which, by the way, is also why things like Thanksgiving are so much harder when people we love are no longer there. This morning, we're going to really look at this theme of tables. We're going to look at the, the, the table that Jesus offers us, that we see in this text. We're going to look at two tables that our current cultural climate offers us. We're going to see that Jesus' table turns us into people who are humble, gentle, and caring. The tables around us, the tables of the world, can turn us into arrogant people. 
people we actually don't want to become. And then we're going to end by looking at how sitting at Jesus' table helps us interact with the tables of the world around us with compassion as well as truth. So in Mark 14, 12, what we see right away is Jesus is talking about this idea of the Passover meal and the unleavened bread. And maybe some of you have heard of that that idea, this, this Passover meal that Jesus is celebrating on this night before he is crucified the next day. And the Passover was really symbolic. And Jesus is, is really bringing us back to it in this text. And I think he's trying to help us see why it's relevant today, actually. And with the Passover meal, it was the, it was the mark turning point in history when the people of Israel had been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And really, they were God's people, but they weren't yet fully living that out. Uh, God had a plan for his people of Israel to be gathered into a land where he would be their king and they would live as his people to be priests to the world around them to share and show of his, his character and who he is, that the nations would know him. And the Passover is the night when a lot of these things start to go into hyperdrive. It's the final judgment of Egypt as the Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And the firstborn are going to be killed. And God says, to avoid this, as my people, to avoid this judgment, I want you to take a lamb, each household. Take a lamb, either a sheep or a goat. Take a lamb, butcher it, Take the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentils of your house. Eat the lamb. Eat it in its entirety. Whatever you don't eat, burn. It's got it, the sacrifice needs to be completely gone. And if you do those things, my judgment will pass over your home. And in the next day, you see the people of Israel flee. God then literally swallows the army of Pharaoh through the Red Sea, allowing his people to start the low, slow, meandering journey of entering the promised land where they would become people, the people of God and they were called every year to celebrate this over a week-long festival, starting with the Seder, which was basically this significant meal that would, would remember this night. They were actually to be around a table celebrating what God had done to bring them to this table. And what you'll notice about this table is this table that God is bringing them to through the Passover is really a table of grace. The people of Israel didn't do anything special to earn this gift of freedom, of a land, of becoming the special people of God, of having this identity, this security, this belonging. Of course, we know their story is riddled with ups and downs, but that's not the point of of what Jesus is getting at at this point. It was grace. They they didn't do anything to earn this favor, this, in fact, there are several times in the Old Testament where God says, I didn't choose you because you're so great. I chose you because of my glory, because of my name. Jesus is bringing the disciples back to this story to help them see that in the same way that the story of the Passover where Israel fled Egypt, 
The table that Jesus is offering them, and through them, each of us, is ultimately a table of grace. It's a table of undeserved mercy. See, in our culture, usually we're under the, the idea that to have a, a, a seat at any table, what do we have to do? Especially in New England. What do you have to do to get a seat at any table in our culture? You have to earn it. Are there handouts in New England? I don't think so. I wasn't raised that way. <clears throat> so he's bringing them back and he's saying, just like that story, this story is a table of grace. And how do I know that? Well, if you go back into Mark 14, 22 through 25, it's interesting what he says. Because remember, he's inviting them into this meal. He's inviting them into this table. And essentially, he's giving them instructions on how they are to not only be at the table with him, but how they are to remain at the table with him, in a sense. How do you do it? How do you not only get a seat with Jesus, how do you keep it? And he says, as they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until I drink it in the new kingdom of drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is boiling it down to one thing that's needed to be at the table with him and to stay there. And fundamentally, it's to recognize our need. Our need for forgiveness. This is incredibly humbling. The only reason we get a seat at the table with Jesus, he's saying, is because you recognize you actually have a need. You actually need my sacrifice. People who don't think they need Jesus' sacrifice are not seated at the table with him. It's the people who realize they are broken beyond their ability to save themselves, to be good enough themselves, to be righteous enough themselves. So this isn't a table of arrogance. This is a table of the ultimate humility, saying, Lord, the only reason I'm here is because of you, because of what you've done. I actually have done nothing to be seated here. And what is the goal of his table? So Jesus shows us how to sit at his table, which is fundamentally to recognize that before a holy God, we stand unbelievably far from the righteousness needed to be in his presence because of the sin in our life. What's the goal of this table? So once we can admit that and say, Jesus, I need your sacrifice, I need your body, I need your blood to cover me, to wash me, to cleanse me, to make me new. And if you don't do that, I'm never going to sit at your table. Even if I try every good work there is, it's not going to be enough. Well, you get the hint of what his goal is in verse 24. He says, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. The promise that Jesus is offering us at his table is that we would become the very children of God. And there's a covenant, which means there's a promise, which means there's an oath, which means there's this binding between God and his people that lasts forever. 
all of us, as I said in our introduction, are looking to sit at a table that will give us belonging, that will give us a deep sense of identity, and will give us a deep sense of safety and even purpose. And I think you can wrap all of those things into the word child. When we believe and experience that we are the children of God who by Jesus' grace alone can sit at his table, it fills us with a sense of belonging, identity, and safety. And fundamentally what it does is it changes us over time into humble people. And honestly, what our world needs right now, more than anything, I believe, is more and more people sitting at the table of Jesus being humbled. People who can approach others with differences and say, yeah, we're different, we have different convictions, but I'm going to be gentle with you. I'm going to be firm on what I stand for and what I believe, but I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be compassionate. There's not a lot of that in our world right now. Now, it's interesting, maybe you guys have this experience too, but for me, when I hear something like that, and I've been preaching that to myself all week, so I've been hearing that a lot, and I think, man, that's good news. So I get to sit at the table of the king, the risen Lord who created the world through the word of his power. I get to sit at his table, and he's done everything for me, and even though he sees the mess that's me, he's forgiven me and filled me with his Holy Spirit, not because of anything I've done, but because of his goodness, his kindness, his sacrifice, his mercy. A rational person would think, I'm just going to sit there all day. I'm just going to sit at that table and soak that in. I'm just going to sit there. But like anything in the Christian life, you learn these incredible truths about the Christian life. And maybe in your quiet time, you're sitting in that truth for about five minutes, and you're like, this is amazing that this is actually true, and I'm actually believing it right now. But what happens after five minutes? Your, your stupid phone dings, and you've forgotten everything you just had experienced. And now you're concerned about uh, you know, what the newest sale of the stock is going to be, or on and on and on it goes. Similarly, there are so many things in our culture that are pulling us away from that table. And I'm just going to highlight two. I think there are several, but I think there's two significant ones, particularly in our New England culture, that I think for such a time as this, uh, we need to be aware of as Christians. And I think we need to wrestle with how do we, how do we interact with these tables that are promising kind of similar things to Jesus, but they're actually very different. They're actually not creating people who are humble. They actually create, in many cases, pride, arrogance, division, fighting. Um, and I think you'll see it as we, we talk uh, this morning. Um, so, so two tables that our particular cultural moment, I think, is offering us to sit at for our place of identity, belonging, and safety. The other difference with these tables is unlike Jesus' table, which is a table that you can't earn, uh, these are tables in our culture that actually we, we, 
we ourselves have to earn. We have to earn our spot at these tables, and we have to keep ourselves there. And that, I think, is part of what causes and creates the arrogance, is that it's something that we have to attain and maintain. Um, so I would say the first one that, that I've thought about this week is, is the, idea, the idea of politics. Um, and some of you are saying, don't go there. But I'm going to go there. <laughs> because if the last five years have taught us anything, it's that politics is important in the church. Right? Now, I, I talk about politics with a, a sense of, of fear and trembling because I'm, I wouldn't claim that I am some uh, expert uh, political scientist. But I've been around the block enough to know some things and had enough conversations with people in this church over the last five to seven years to have learned some things that I think are really important. And I also know that our church is one that's divided politically. I don't mean divided in the sense of we're constantly fighting, but we have different views. And so what I'm not doing is looking to rip on that. But what I am trying to teach is how do we live? How do we, how do we approach this? How do we move forward, especially with this idea of this, these tables that, that are competing I'm also not talking about politics in terms of, of certain issues. Um, I think in general, we need to be careful not to put all of our identity, all of our sense of security, belonging, safety, into a certain party, into a certain political movement, into a certain ideology. I think that has hurt the church, especially in the last five to ten years. So I think we need to be mindful of where we're putting our fundamental identity as Christians. Now, that being said, even though I think we need to be careful about that, I'm not saying we shouldn't take stands as Christians on certain issues. I actually think issues in our political realm are very important. For instance... The issue of, and, and frankly, it bothers me that a lot of these, these issues that we're wrestling with as Christians and as the church and in our culture are, in my mind, being called political issues when actually the issues are far deeper than that. They're far deeper. Some of the issues that politics has grabbed, in my mind, aren't political at all. They are deeply relevant to a Christian. And they are deeply relevant to God himself. And so I think as Christians, we need to be firmly aware of what Scripture teaches, what God thinks about these critical issues that, yes, are in our political sphere, but they have so much deeper meaning than that. I'm just going to give two examples of this this morning. One is this idea of um, 
as we think about the upcoming election season and all these things, what are, what are we doing as Christians to stand for the rights of the unborn? I'm not talking politics. 1 John 1, 2 refers to Jesus Christ who we are all here to worship as what? What does 1 John 1, 2 teach us Jesus is? The one we're here to worship. Who is he? He is life. Jesus Christ is life. Anything that's alive in creation, anything, is completely dependent on Jesus Christ for its existence. There is nothing that is alive or ever has been alive that is outside of Jesus Christ himself. There's nothing. And so, this idea of issues related to life, I, I don't buy the political part of that. What I say is that if there is an issue of life, then Jesus Christ has everything to do with that. Has everything to do with that. And I need to know what, he, what, what are his views of life. Not some commentator. I need to know what God himself thinks about life. He's the author. He's the creator of it. In addition, the Bible does not have different categories for inside-outside the womb. It has one word. Brephos. Child. Life. There's one word. There's not two. I know this is super heavy, but I think it's really important that the church talks about these things. And I'm trying to do it with compassion and gentleness, but I think it is critical. Because all of our kids are hearing about this stuff all day long. I would say this. If this is deeply personal to you, this whole idea, I am not here to judge and condemn. In fact, I'm someone who has done sins that are absolutely on par with this. And I'd be happy to share the craziness of my own story. So I am not here on a high horse. Far from it. I'm simply teaching that I have come to realize that Jesus Christ is life himself, and so nothing else matters. The table of Jesus offers abundant forgiveness for anything we have done. It doesn't matter what we've done. The table of Jesus Christ offers us abundant forgiveness. The body and blood of Jesus covers every sin. There's so much hope, even if there's so much brokenness in our life. This is the place to be if you've gone through something like this. This is the place to be. This is where we want you. Another issue that I thought about 
as we think about politics in this coming cycle, um, is what does it what does it look like um, to help the poor? The if you read Isaiah fifty nine and Micah, uh, what you find is God is passionate passionate that Christians have a holistic, compassionate, comprehensive view of how to come alongside and take care of the poor and ostracized. This afternoon, read Isaiah 59 or Micah. Those are just two examples of many. And it's, it's not just that God cares that we think about the poor or do a little thing here and there. In fact, what you see him doing in Isaiah and Micah in particular, a lot of it's actually a lot of the book, of, especially the end of Micah, or the end of Isaiah. He is rebuking the leaders of Israel, the institutional governmental leaders of Israel. He's rebuking them for not coming up with organized, systematic, ongoing, structured ways to help the poor and marginalized. I mean, he uses unbelievably harsh words for leaders who act that way and who aren't focused on that night and day. So as Christians, we need to equally have an incredible interest in the poor, in the marginalized, in the communities that are under-resourced. It's, it's not a political issue. It's not something that we should be dividing over as Christians. It's, it's something that is absolutely central to the heart of God. And I believe in my own life and in our culture's life, God's going to have a lot of things to say about how we drop the ball. So please hear me as we think about politics, that I'm not asking you to, to that you're, the issues you're passionate about that maybe have you on different sides of the political spectrum. I'm not asking you to, to not have these incredibly strong convictions about these issues. What I'm saying is we need to be really careful as Christians that we're not putting our fundamental identity in the fact that we're a Democrat, we're a Republican. That we're sitting at that table all the time, taking in all the news, all the talk shows. Because what I've seen in my own life, in the life of my close friends, who fairly admit this to me, is the further down you go in that road, where your core identity becomes a political party, again, not the issues that I think are critical, we've just touched on, but the party affiliation becomes everything about who you are, the fruit I've seen over and over again is it doesn't turn you into a humble person. What ends up happening is you turn into a proud person. I'm right, they're wrong. I'm smart, they're stupid. I'm enlightened, they're not enlightened. It's not the humility of Jesus' table that's saying, I bring nothing. I receive your mercy. I receive your grace. I don't have some enlightened view that's better than someone else. I'm a mess. That's not the tone on CNN or Fox News. It's not. If you turn it on, there's arrogance, there's pomp on both sides. The other side are stupid. We're right. And I think that's toxic for the church. I don't think we should sit there as Christians and that be our fundamental identity. <clears throat> um, 
the last table I just want to touch on briefly. So the first one is politics, and I think we need to be very mindful of that as we enter uh, this season. Um, I'm just going to close with a, a couple things. I'm not going to go as deeply into this, but I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring this second table up is I, um, I'm going with all the heavy hitters today. I know it's like, I'm sorry if I'm uh, offending you. <laughs> but I just think it's so important that we talk about these things. Um, the second table that I think are, we're being invited into in our New England culture that, that adds a lot of pressure and causes a lot of issues for the church and for Christians is the whole, the whole table, the whole movement of gender and sexuality. And one of the reasons I put this in this morning actually the main reason, is I knew that this was a week where the middle schoolers and high schoolers would be in the sermon. Can you raise your hand if you're a middle schooler or high schooler? Yeah, there's a lot of you guys in here. Now, some of us who are older may think I'm overstating this or this shouldn't be as big a, a topic for a sermon. But I'll tell you this, for students who are in middle school and high school in particular, um, this is increasingly the air they breathe. This is the stuff that's going on. What time does the bell ring at your guys' school? 8.05 to 3? Parents, that's a long time of the day. Um, and this is in the schools, in the culture, it's in social media, it's in the youth movement. It just is. And if you don't see that, um, I just would have to disagree. <laughs> it just is. Um, and I think increasingly, we need to be aware of, of what, what is, is going on with that. Um, what, what is this table that's being offered, especially to the youth, and as we as parents in the church can, can come alongside and, and, and lovingly be a part of it. Because the interesting thing about this one is, this one's trickier than politics in my mind, because it, it is using terms like, to our kids, all means all, open-minded, welcoming, accepting. It, it's, it's essentially presenting as a table of grace, as a table of, of mercy, which in some ways I think you could potentially make that argument, but in other ways you, you can't make that argument. Because the deeper you go into it, the more you realize it's, it's, not, it's not the same thing as a table of grace that Jesus offers us. It's not. Because similarly, you have to earn and keep a seat at that table by fully agreeing and becoming fully enlightened in the ideas. And what are the ideas? Well, I think there's three pillars that it stands on. One is that gender is fluid in a Western construct in the last few hundred years. So gender is fluid in a Western construct. That's what's being encouraged. The second pillar is that we should, and it's actually biologically healthy, to live out any and all sexual desire or urge. And that the last one is that creatures internally 
not the, cre- not the creator externally, are the final authority on what is right and wrong. If you don't ascribe to those three pillars, you're not invited into the table. And my issue is that Scripture disagrees with those three conclusions fundamentally. It, it, each pillar, Scripture deconstructs. The longer you go into embracing the gender sexuality movement, and I'm not saying this is everyone, but there are many cases where, and I've seen this and experienced this many times in my own personal life, it leads us to become people who judge others. If you don't accept these three, you're canceled. You're out. You're bad. You're wrong. You're a bigot. It's, it's not a table of grace. It's a table of, I have to ascribe to this, even if it breaks my conscience, or I'm a terrible person. And that puts our kids in a very difficult place. Very difficult place. And we as parents need to be aware of what's going on and understand some of these foundations I'm just briefly talking on. But, but I'm saying to you kids, this table is not the same as the table of Jesus, and it doesn't ultimately make us humble followers of Christ. It doesn't. So to close, sitting at Jesus' table empowers us to engage the tables of the world in humility and wisdom. Um, Here's the deal. With politics and gender sexuality, these are the pressing things, I think, in our current cultural climate within the church and without that our kids are facing, that we're facing. I think the kids need to talk about it. Quick call out to the trips and shoemakers. They're taking our middle school kids through this awesome book by a woman who's way smarter than I am, PhD from Cambridge. And she is talking about these issues of gender, sexuality, racism, love, all these critical issues that we're talking about. And they're having the courage to take our middle school kids through this. I think that is so awesome. So encouraged that our kids are being equipped to know how to handle this stuff. It's heavy, heavy stuff. Adults don't even know how to handle it. How can kids? So as we sit at Jesus' table, here's what happens. It it makes us humble people. So we can begin to engage. For instance, I have Christian friends who have different political parties than me. We disagree on certain things. I, I increasingly hope on the key issues we're united. I hope that happens. Um, but I'm not, my goal as a Christian, the more I sit at Jesus' table and say, my identity is built on Jesus Christ alone. It's not built on my goodness or my good deeds or the fact that I'm smarter or have arrived at some special place. No, my identity is grace, the broken body of Jesus Christ. That helps me engage with my friends of different political persuasions with a sense of compassion, listening, understanding. Also to challenge one another. Are we putting too much identity in our political affiliation? Is our identity rooted enough in Jesus Christ? You know, they tried to make Jesus a political figurehead as well, right? What did he say to that? (laughs) 
Maybe distance yourself a little bit from the nightly news that can be so intense and heated and make, this, make us more and more proud as people and not humble. Maybe turn some of that stuff off. Maybe fast from some of that stuff for a season. And with gender sexuality, now, there are certain people in that movement who absolutely have an agenda. They do. You the reason this stuff is in our public schools um, even though it's presenting a worldview, just like any other faith. And make no mistake, it is presenting a worldview and a belief system. But the reason it's in our schools is because people have an agenda. They have a goal, especially with our kids. However, that's not true of everybody. In fact, there's a lot of people who are genuinely struggling with gender and sexuality that the church has not done a good job loving. It's a real thing. It is a real thing. It's just that we want those people who are simply looking for a place to belong. And this is the table they're offered, so they take it. And it's offered at school, so they take it. What we're simply saying is, we want the table they sit at to not be that, but to be the table of Jesus Christ. The church. This is the place where people who are genuinely struggling should be. Not judged or ostracized, but actually welcomed in. Because here's the deal. Even if that's not your particular struggle, we're all a mess. All of us. None of us, that's the whole point of the sermon, none of us bring anything to this table. So why should we be here and not someone who's struggling with gender and sexuality? It doesn't make any sense. We need to have more compassion. I need to have more compassion. So to close this week, picture yourself at the table with Jesus. Take his body and blood broken and poured out for you. And be amazed that you get a seat at the king's table and you did nothing to earn it. Because ultimately what our culture needs most right now, whether it's in the arena of politics or gender and sexuality, is people who are genuinely sitting at Jesus' table being transformed into humble people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, these are 